You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. In about the year 2000, I was standing on the, the bow of the MV Doulos, a 6,000-ton ship, and it was, I think, around 133 metres long, and we were leaving the port of Cebu, and as we left the port of Cebu, to be quite honest, many of us on the ship actually left our heart in Cebu. When we were tied up along the quayside there, the, the pier, there were countless numbers of, of um, uh, squatters just living on the pier next to the ship, and, and our, our, our lives touched one another as we were coming on and off the ship, as we welcomed them aboard, and... And in fact, our lives touched the, the folk down on the quayside there so deeply that this young couple who were actually expecting a baby, they named, that the baby was born while our, our ship was in port, they named the baby Doulos, uh, not knowing that in, in the Greek it was servant, but I pray for Doulos that uh, uh, he is continuing to, to serve the Lord in, in some way or another. But as we were leaving the port, I couldn't help but fight this deep sense of just disappointment. To be quite honest, when I saw needs like that, I just wanted to, and Bron knows, I even dared to suggest it to her, what if we gave the rest of our days to a little church plant here in Cebu in the Philippines? And... um, I think it just it just grabbed my heart, and I could I could see myself in in virtual obscurity there, just just spending the rest of my days um, ministering God's word. It wasn't to be, but as I stood on the bow of the ship and we sailed out again, I was fighting this deep sense of disappointment. You see, going way back, um, we had we had been to Bible college. Uh, we, we had studied uh, our theology. I'd majored in missiology, and it was, it was my, my desire to, to serve God cross-culturally. Um, God had ah, oh, just come through for us again and again and again during those, those days at Bible college. There was no government assistance back then. We, we lived off basically $70 a, a fortnight, uh, but we just saw the Lord's hand of provision again and again. And so there was a sense in which, in which those stories of old of faith that you hear over here and over there, they had become our stories. Those stories were now our stories. God's story was our story. His story was our story. But now what? Well, now we, we felt that, well, now that we knew this God and we knew that he could provide and we knew that, you know, uh, we had experienced these steps of faith with him, let's go change the world. Let's, let's head overseas on what Andrew McKenzie dubbed the love boat. Um, and uh, let's, let's go make a difference. Let's take the land. And there I was on the bow of the ship thinking how different all of this was to what we had hoped to do. Having majored in missiology now, I, I, I felt like we were in some strange school. In, in fact, actually, that was, that was the idea. When we first approached Operation Mobilization and said, here we are, we're available. We've had a little bit of pastoral, pastoral ministry. This is my major. How can you use us? And, and they were really looking at, at three options. One was a, a mission training school in the Czech Republic. And uh, I would head that up, and and so that was kind of kind of that was kind of cool. We thought, well, yeah, we could we could see ourselves doing that. The other one was to um, actually direct OM here in Australia, 
And I felt honored that they would even suggest that, but I sort of felt like, oh, we, we have no cross-cultural experience. How can, I, how can I possibly talk to other people about going overseas and serving God when we've never done it ourselves? Um, and, then, and then the third one was, or you could go on board the MV Doulos. And, and so we felt, in, in terms of a training role, we felt that's got to be the one, I think. That's got to be the one. But as somebody said as we left to go to the ship, they said, Stuart, of all of those positions, you must understand that this is, the, this is the one that represents the greatest obscurity to you. But I thought about a quote that one of my mentors and, and former professors had given to me, and it was simply this, Stuart, there's no end to what God will do to the man who doesn't care about who gets the credit. If you are happy to be available to God and, and you don't care who gets the credit for what happens, then pff, go for it. God can use you mightily. So I sort of thought, all right, there's virtual obscurity here in the belly of this ship, um, but I think it's going to be a good and important school for us. But what a strange school it was. And, and as I stood on the bow, I wondered, what are you up to, God? What are you up to? You see, there are important history lessons that God must teach us before we can take the land. We've been looking at the life of Joshua and Joshua and the Israelites crossing the Jordan. And uh, just, just to recap real quick, um, uh, Israel, the Hebrews, were in slavery in Egypt. Not a, good, not a good or desirable place to be. God delivered them. They crossed the Red Sea, but they failed to be able to be obedient to God and to believe him for all that he has promised. That generation passed away. A new generation rose up. Now they had to have their own sea, sea crossing. They, they, they'd heard the stories from their parents about crossing the Red Sea, but they had no such story themselves. Here, God, as he led them across the Jordan, the Exodus part two, God was going to give them their very own story. They now would experience the miraculous power of God. And so they crossed the Jordan River. And you would think at this point, wow, they're ready, right? Ready to take the land. But no, there's a pause, as there often is in the Christian life, because there was a history lesson, an important history lesson, that they had to face before they could take the land. In the Joshua chapter, chapter 5, we read this. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Wow. You would think at this moment, strategically speaking, this is the moment to charge. This is the moment to blow your trumpets and, and kind of just, just take everybody by surprise. Their hearts had melted. Nobody could stand against them. If you were thinking like a military general, go get them. But instead, instead there is a most surprising strategy. Verse 2, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeah Haraloth. And, and essentially, this is a rather surprising strategy. Render all of the males, the entire male population, useless. 
for a number of days. That was God's strategy. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about circumcision. And there was a, I was taking a doctoral course one time, and, and, um, and this was on homiletics or preaching. And one of the principles was when you come across a tricky passage, take people's attention to it, don't try and ignore it, and then take people's attention away from it. Now, I was, I was given a number of chapters in 1 Samuel where, where David, you know, he kind of liked Saul's daughter, but there was a condition. He had to go and collect a hundred Philistine foreskins. Of course, Saul was hoping that he would get killed in the process. So the trick was, as I was preparing for this sermon, all right, you know, that's kind of a tricky one to preach on. How do I take people's attention to it and take them away from it? And, and so it was a, a, you know, a narrative preaching class where you would tell it in the first or the third person. I chose the first person. And so I had to do something with this. And so as we, you know, these are all doctoral students. We're all sort of sitting in a big circle and and so I had to, had to preach. Actually, you preach to them this way, but then, you know, you critique the sermon in the circle afterwards. So I preached, and the narrative went something along the lines of this. As, as David left Saul's presence, he had a bit of a kick in his step. He had a mission. He was on a mission, and his men, who knew David, their leader quite well, they could sense that something was up. All of a sudden, as they grabbed their swords and readied the horses, they knew that they were going out on an important mission. One of them dared to yell out to David, What is it, David? What is it that we are seeking? And David replied, 200, not 100, 200 Philistine foreskins. And with that, he kept on marching to ready his horse. The soldier who dared to ask turned to the other and said, that's not something people hand over lightly. <laughs> and then I lost the class. I think my professor at the time said that must be one of the all-time greatest understatements. And uh, in the critique, I actually failed that part of the sermon. So, anyway, I have now taken your attention to it. Let's take it away from it. We will talk a little bit about circumcision today. Um, and yes, it's a bit of a bit of a squirmy topic, but I want to want to get to what is what is this all about? What is going on in this passage? Why this surprising strategy? What is God up to? Why would He render the entire Israelite forces powerless for a number of days and and defy what we would say, militarily speaking, would be would have been a great strategy and uh, having the upper hand there. Well, verse 4 and 5 tells us there's a very practical reason why they needed to be circumcised. And the practical reason is because they hadn't been. It's not something you do twice. Verse 4 says, Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, they died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. Quite simply, the practical explanation for this was they hadn't been circumcised. Okay, but then verse 6 tells us the underlying reason. What, what is going on here? Why was this necessary? What, what was all of this about? Verse 6, the Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, um, a place flowing with milk and honey. 
they had not obeyed the Lord. Now, this was a history lesson. Here was this whole new generation of Israelites. They had crossed the Jordan, and and now here they were in a position where they were about to take the land, but they weren't yet prepared. They needed to have this little history lesson. Do you remember the story of your parents? Do you remember why you wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years? Um, no. Somebody else. We were lost. No. Somebody else. Uh, we liked the desert. No. Somebody else. We couldn't go back to Egypt. No. Somebody else. We were disobedient. Yes. That's why, that's your history lesson. Your parents were disobedient. They disobeyed God and and because they disobeyed God, they could not proceed. They could not take this land. Verse 24 of the previous chapter kind of hints at what this whole underlying reason was. That the whole miracle of crossing over the Jordan was for this reason, verse 24. This was the result that was expected. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. All right? And so that you, the people of Israel, God's people, you might always fear the Lord your God. Twofold purpose. The crossing of the Jordan, the miracle that it was, was A, so that all of the peoples of the world would know that the Lord's hand was powerful. You can't stand against that. B, that the people of God, the Israelites, would fear the Lord. Now, fearing God isn't something that we understand so well nowadays, is it? It's a it's a little bit, of a little bit of a tricky one. How does a fear of God and the father heart of God go together? What's, what's the link? How does this kind of work? Is that sort of this fear of God? Is that sort of more of an Old Testament thing? But then, no, it appears in the New Testament as well. Okay, what's going on here? Well, one way to understand it is, is to, to look at Proverbs, a, a, a verse I'm sure you've heard before, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So here, a fear of the Lord and the knowledge of the Holy One are equated. To fear God is to to know God. Fear and knowledge of God actually go together. So that's a good thing. In other words, if you want to, if your life pursuit is to know God and to to know him more deeply and to know him better, then, well, fearing him, learning to fear him is, is, is part of how that happens. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. As knowledge is to understanding, so fear is to wisdom. Maybe I can use this illustration to, to help you. Uh, you know a little bit, one of our favorite little getaway spots is on the 90-mile beach in Gippsland, Sea Spray. Now, Sea Spray is a wicked beach. It can be very, very enjoyable. But whenever we take a guest there, we stand up on the dunes, and the first thing we do is we don't run down to the water. We stand up on the dunes, and we survey the water. And I will tell stories of how last summer a helicopter rescue um, had to take somebody and and. You know, it's not every year, but there have been deaths there. I will tell those stories about this water. I will put fear 
into our guests that we are about to take down into the water. I've got a purpose behind that. The same word in Hebrew for wisdom is, is skill. Before they can develop the skill set that you need to be able to enjoy Sea Spray Beach, before you can have that skill set, firstly, you need just a little bit of fear in you, a little bit of fearful respect. You need to understand the water. So we look up there and, and then, I, then I point out how entirely different the water is to the beach and the movements, and, we, and we'll study, we'll, we'll look for where, where there's going to be a little bit of a rip, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about you know, how that happens and where there's a bit of a gully and, and the first breakers and the second breakers, and we'll just study the water. Okay, so now can you, see, can you see that movement of water there? That's what's happening. So we will study it. An understanding of the Holy One or a knowledge of the Holy One is the, is the beginning of understanding. In other words, if you want to develop the skill set that will enable you to enjoy the beach at Sea Spray, you need a bit of fearful respect first. If you want to understand how it is that you can get the most out of the water and body surf and just enjoy those amazing waves, then firstly, you need a little bit of knowledge or, or, or understanding of what's happening out there. Well, the same, it seems, is, is with God. We need to have a fearful respect and awe of God. We need to have a reverence of Him if we are to, if we are to know Him. This is not actually um, at any way in odds with, at, at odds rather, with um, having a relationship with Him, an intimate relationship as a, as a father whatsoever. I think in this thing... This fear of God is, is somewhat lost today. It seems to me today that there is very little fear of the Lord. We've confused love with sentimentalism, which is full of feeling but lacks real grit. We've confused grace with tolerance, where every light is green and our morality is in gridlock. We've confused commands with suggestions because at the end of the day, it's your truth. We've confused God's law with civil law, which is easily contested and open to all manner of interpretation. We've confused the Bible with any old book, for surely the relevance fades with the pages that it's printed on. We've confused God with a genie who, when summoned, will make your every wish come true. According to our definitions, the book of John would have stopped at chapter 3, verse 15. There would be no, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. No, that, that wouldn't have been, because according to our definitions... It would go something like this. For God, who was full of sentimental feelings towards the world, didn't quite have the grit to send his son. Besides, having such a tolerable disposition, there really was no point anyway. Jesus himself, thinking it was only a suggestion, would never have swapped the nature of God for that of a servant. 
And regardless, even if God did dare to send his son, we'd have appealed the decision and simply sent him back. We'd simply explain that thanks to our own social evolution, the incarnation is no longer relevant. And if, however, we do find a need for a God, we'll certainly summon one. It would actually be funny if it wasn't true, wouldn't it? Whilst there is an element of deception that can partially explain this, when will we finally have the humility to acknowledge that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us to our own way, and we fall hopelessly short of the glory of God in which we were made? When will we believe? When will we repent? We lack, I think, something in our theology, a practical theology that is, when we fail to understand there is such a thing as a healthy fear of God. He should be, he ought to be revered. We should, firstly, stand in awe of him and then bow the knee, and then fall prostrate, scared, silly, because of his utter holiness. We're going to get to, in the book of Joshua, some, some rather puzzling passages. And there is only one way to understand some of what is going to take place in the next few chapters. I can tell you now, it's not nice, it's bloody. There's only one way to understand it, and that is by rediscovering the holiness of God. That he is different to us. He is set apart from us. He is as different as the water is to the sand. If you go into the water thinking it's just like the sand, you're in trouble. You must understand the water is set apart from the sand. It's totally different, and you ought to learn to respect it. Or it's going to drag you away. God needs to be revered. He is who he is. And like the mystics of old... We do well to embrace that which we don't understand and not elevate ourselves above God's word, his revelation. This fear of God, it's, a, it's an important thing. I can maybe explain it best this way. I don't know if you've, you've traveled overseas at times and you've You've collected a little bit of the local currency, and sometimes, well, it's funny. <laughs> they don't always put it in our language, do they? I don't know why. But you look through the coins, and you may pick one up, and you kind of think, huh, how, 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 could, I, how could I use this? Uh, somebody might think the same of our rather oddly shaped 50-cent coin. They may not speak English. They may not understand our our letters and our alphabet, our numbers. And so they might look at that and kind of think, oh, I like the animals there. Is that a kangaroo? Ah. And then sort of think, what, how could I use this? Well, you could, 
you could kind of use it to exchange it for, for other things, 50 cents worth of other things, in fact. But, but how would you know that? How would you know where you could possibly so exchange things? Well, you would turn it around. You'd look at the, the head of state. You would look at the authority on it. And once you, once you can identify who authorizes this, ah, you know then, don't you, how you can use it. In this case, it's Queen Elizabeth II, and, uh, and that little colony called Australia, well, this will, allow you to, this will allow you to exchange goods and services up to the value of 50 cents. That actually won't get you anything, will it? No, but anyway, collect a few and, and there you go. In other words, the who determines the how. When we live for, sorry, who you live for determines how you live. A previous generation had lost a fear of God, and the result, they disobeyed. What did they fear? Why they feared their the enemies that surrounded them. They feared starvation. They feared themselves. They feared each other. They feared many things. There was lots of fear, no shortage of fear. They feared lots of things, and that determined how they lived. The one person they didn't properly fear was God. Who you fear determines how you live. So to a new generation, God was simply saying, History lesson. You know what happened to your parents? You don't want that to happen to you as well? You don't want to kind of just wander around for 40 years aimlessly, only to pass on the, the joy of living with God to the next generation? You don't want to do that. Learn from history. They forgot to fear me. They feared everything else, but they didn't fear me. Now, don't do the same. Here's your opportunity. You can choose if you fear me, if you obey me, it will go well for you and we can take this land. But it starts with having an awe, a reverence, a, an understanding of the Holy One. You must know me because who you live for will determine how you live. Who do you live for? John Smith used to say, we love to think in our sophisticated society that all of us with our evolved minds uh, walk around life looking for the most satisfactory ideology, the one that makes the most sense to us. It might be atheism. It might be Christianity. It might be Islam. We find that ideology that makes the most sense, and then we live according to it. We say, ha-ha, that makes sense. Now I will have an integrated life. I will behave according to what I believe. We'd love to think that, not true. John used to say, and I remember picking this up in the early days and pondering this much, and ever since I've having applied it, I think it's true, it's true, it's true. No, this is how it works. We, and I would say to a large extent, as Christians as well, we so often look for a lifestyle that appeals to us, and maybe that's a Christian lifestyle. We look for a lifestyle that appeals to us, and then we find a belief system to back it up. 
We'd love to think that we all live lives of absolute integrity, living out our belief system. Rubbish. We just find the way we want to live, and then we back it up with a belief system. We'll find one. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But God is actually saying here, I want you to do this differently. I don't even want you to look for a belief system that makes sense and then live according to it. I know you can't do that. You're always fall prone to finding a, finding a lifestyle that suits you and then backing it up with your own belief system. I know that. That's humanity. That's the fall. So God says, here's a different way. And the only way forward, actually, in this matter. Find me. Live for me. Decide in your heart that I will be God. I will be Lord. You will give me your all. Trust me. Step out in faith. Follow me. Give your life to me. And I will give you the life you always wanted. Choose me. Who we live for determines how we live. And so this was the choice for the Israelites. This was it. This was their moment. Who will you live for? Who are you really afraid of? Who will you serve this day? And they chose to the man. They chose to live for God. They chose to follow him. And in response, they accepted this ritual of circumcision. Now we know three things about circumcision. And and the first one is... From Genesis 17, it had to do with, we've got Abraham back there. Genesis 17, it had to do with covenant membership. Um, In this regard, I have somewhere here, it's fallen under my Bible, Ah, a wedding ring. It's actually Nat's. He loaned it to me and asked me not to mention that. Um, Oh, my bad. So, a wedding ring. When, when you, we exchange them, it reminds us, doesn't it, that, well, um, this actual wedding ring here symbolizes that Nat now belongs to Beck. Uh, Beck, Beck has one too. It reminds her that she now belongs to Nat. It's, we exchange the rings and we are essentially saying, I now belong to you. The wedding ring is just a little, a little symbol, a little reminder of one of the one of the signs that circumcision had to do with covenant relationship, covenant membership. It, it essentially marked you as saying, I belong to God. I belong to God. And in that sense, as the whole nation entered into that covenant membership and took on that sign or that symbol, they were essentially saying... As one nation, we belong to God. We belong to God. Um, Secondly, Deuteronomy 10 um, then then tells us that this covenant was very much a heart thing. It was to be a, a thing of the heart. It wasn't just to be outward obedience, but Deuteronomy 10 was very much about 
this covenant must be a covenant of the heart. And that's what makes sense about later language in Scripture, about a circumcision of the heart. I want your heart, your, your innermost being, to be marked as mine. In other words, the nation was saying, I belong to you or we belong to you. Our hearts belong to you. Right at the very core of who we are, we belong to you. Um, and then, here's an interesting one. Jeremiah 4 points out that this covenant relationship with God was also a matter of consecration. Consecration means to set yourself apart from and apart for. To set yourself apart from everything that is unholy and set yourself apart for the one who is holy. Consecration was to set yourself apart from everything else. To enter into a covenant membership with God was not only to say, I belong to you, my heart belongs to you, but it was going one step further and saying, and I don't belong to anything else. Do you like that? I belong to you, my heart belongs to you, and I'll be a slave to nothing. I'm all yours. That consecration was the opposite of slavery. Um, and this point is, is actually made for us in, in verse 8. After the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they healed. Verse 9, this is precious. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. The NLT puts it this way. I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. Now that you have, have been circumcised, now that you have been allowed to mark yourselves as belonging to me, I have removed the shame of your slavery. Because now you belong to me, you belong to no other. You cannot be a slave and belong to God. Once you belong to God, you are no longer a slave. You're a slave to nothing. You belong to nothing else. Isn't that precious? That's what was being said at this point. The nations setting themselves apart for God. We belong to you. Our hearts belong to you. And we are no longer slaves to anything else. We belong to nothing else. We will not let anything else control us. And God says it's true. It's true. You know what? I have removed the shame of your slavery in Egypt. You are no longer slaves. You are mine. To belong to God is to shun the shackles of slavery. Actually, I did have a symbol for that. You would have thought in this church there'd be no shortage of handcuffs, wouldn't you? But apparently everyone left them at work. But um, Milton did supply me with a little, a little thing that they use, which is a little bit more portable. But um, if you're ever in the city, actually, you see Milton and you're being naughty, these would, these would very, very quickly shackle you. We are no longer a slave to anyone or anything when we are in covenant relationship with God. It's a, it's a beautiful picture and a beautiful, a beautiful promise. When you belong to God, you can be a slave to nothing. A new director came to the, to the doulos and uh, he became a bit of a mentor of mine, Francois Vosloo. He's a great leader. Prophetically, perhaps, 
one of the most stunningly accurate people I've ever met. He just nailed me. And I thought I was, I thought I was pretty, pretty tricky, but no, he nailed me. And when he came to the ship, he, he said, Stuart, as we shared together, you've said that, that you, want to, you want to know Christ, Philippians 3.10, and the fellowship of his sufferings and so forth. It, let me ask you this. If I asked you to give up your job as director of training and to just go on gangway watch, would you do it? And I didn't know him well enough to know whether this was kind of a hypothetical question or whether it was a real question. So being a cautious man, I said, let me come back to you on that. (laughs) Because the truth was, if he was serious, I would struggle with that. I was already struggling. Initially, I'd asked to, to come to the ship and, Stuart, you've got fresh eyes. Tell us what you see. But when I told the leadership what I saw, they didn't like that. And I wasn't being asked anymore. <laughs> so here I kind of, well, what am I doing here? I wrestled with that for quite a while. I came back to Francois eventually and I said, Francois, I got an answer. He said, let's meet. And we met. And as I gave him my answer, I actually thought that he would roster me onto gangway duty. I said, the answer is, for Jesus, yes, I would. And he said, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And that was it. But you know what changed? Not my job on the ship. But my heart attitude had changed immensely just by thinking and pondering that question. Because no longer was I a slave to the idea that somehow I was lost on board the ship and doing things that were under me and or beneath me and so forth. I I had surrendered all of that. I had declared in my heart of hearts, Lord, (laughs) what does it matter what I do on board the ship? I belong to you. And I was no longer a slave to feeling somehow that I was underutilized. Um, Bron had her moment too. We on one occasion met with, with Francois because we were thinking, praying about a job in the US. And, and strangely, that was the one place that, that Bron wasn't keen to, to go to. She didn't want to to go and live in the US. You can ask her later what her reasons were. But she <laughs> we met with Francois on this occasion. And, and as, we, as we were there, Bron said, thinking that she would find an ally in him, you know, yeah, Stuart has got this crazy idea that maybe we should go and serve OM in the US. <laughs> there are much needier places in the world, right? We, we shouldn't do that. And Francois just looked, looked at Bron, this piercing look, big brown eyes like a Labrador. <laughs> he didn't look like a Labrador. But anyway, he looked at Bron and he said, 
Maybe. Maybe not. My question for you is this. You might not do it for the US of A, but would you do it for Jesus? And Bron just, oh. I don't know. It's probably the same. Give me a couple of days. You see, once those things are surrendered, who you will serve determines how you will live. Who you serve opens you up to be a slave to nothing, a slave to no fear, a slave to to no aspirations anymore. You're not a slave to any dreams or motivations, fear of the past, what other people will say. You're a slave to nothing. Nothing can own you because you belong to the Lord. Your heart belongs to the Lord and you belong to nothing, nothing else. Nothing else will get in that way. You are wholeheartedly the Lord's and a slave to nothing else. Verse 10 through to to 12, record that they were now ready. Having settled this issue, having marked themselves as belonging to the covenant membership, or having covenant membership and belonging to God, they were now ready to take the land. They learned from the history of the past. No longer did they have rebellious hearts, stubborn hearts, fearful hearts. Nope, no more. They belonged to God and to God alone. I wonder this morning, what is it that might hold you in some form or another to slavery? What is it that you belong to? all that has a hold on your life, what would hold you back from being totally available and totally surrendered to God? What are you fearful of? Because who you fear determines how you live. And I wonder if you'd like to close your eyes as we as we come to this time of response this passage goes on to talk about how the israelites celebrated the passover once more god's provision was evident the manna stopped and and from now on verse 12 They ate the produce of Canaan. They were ready. They had the first fruits of this promised land. They were ready to take the land. They ate the produce of Canaan. And it was good produce. (laughs) The manna stopped. They were no longer reliant upon it. God wants you to have all of the first fruits of all that he has promised you. But he will not do it until you are totally surrendered to him. He cannot do it until you are totally surrendered to him. We must go to this school. We must understand the importance of obedience. We must come to a place where we fear God alone. For fear of God is freedom from slavery. Let me say that again. Fear of God is freedom from slavery. We must get this matter correct. 
And when we do, the produce of the land is yours for the taking. Everything that God desires for you, everything that he wants, everything that he longs for you to have, it's yours for the taking. Lord Jesus, as we come to your table, we can see two symbols which represent the obedience of your son, Jesus, who was fully surrendered to you and to your purposes. We will shortly hold the cup which symbolizes his blood which was shed on our behalf. It cleanses us from all of our sins. And if we are in any doubt, we need only to remember that as we agree with you that our sins are wrong, that is confession, based on your character, you are faithful and you are just. You will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we will hold the bread, which symbolizes your body, which was broken for us. At the cross, you were broken and you died. At the cross, we also died. For when we are in you, there is no more of us. We are now free to live the lives for which we were made and which we were chosen. In Christ, we belong to you and we are slaves to nothing. There is freedom to choose the Christ life. We have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who lives, but Christ who lives within us. The life we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. This is what we celebrate. Fellowship with the Father. Freedom from the past. Hope for the future. Thank you, Jesus. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.